All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles. If you will, take out a copy of Scripture with me and turn to Exodus chapter 34 one more time. Exodus 34. Today we finish our series on Exodus chapters 32 through 34. It was a a series just within those chapters, and then next week we'll be moving on to something else. Exodus 34 today, beginning in verse 29. Now one wedding tradition that has kind of fallen out of style these days is the bride wearing a veil over her face. used to happen at every single wedding you'd ever been to, and not so much anymore, but sometimes it still does happen. And as the bride would approach her husband after walking down the aisle, her future husband, you should say at that point, would remove the veil over the top of her face, kind of put it back over her head, and then the ceremony would start. The history of this tra- tradition is very interesting. As I looked it up this past week, I didn't know m- much of this. Many would say that the, the wearing of a veil started because of the superstition that it's bad luck for the groom to see the bride before the ceremony. Actually, in some arranged marriages around the world, the groom has never seen the bride until she walks up to him at the wedding ceremony because it's an arranged marriage. Sometimes they're from very far off. They're not from the same local area. Can you imagine lifting the veil and looking at that person for the very first time? Can you imagine a group or a groom trying to hide his reaction as he thinks in his mind, I hope she's got a good personality. <laughs> they had never seen each other. Now, some trace the practice of wearing a veil back to ancient Rome and the Greeks, where the brides used to believe that they were disguising their faces from evil spirits who wanted to thwart their happiness. Some say it simply began as a way of representing modesty and purity on part of the bride. There is even reason to believe that the practice of the bride's father walking her down the aisle started because brides were wearing veils that they couldn't see through. They couldn't see where they were going, and so they had to be led down the aisle by someone, might as well be her dad. Whatever the case may be, normally in our modern culture, we hear that word veil and we think weddings, we think brides. But my hope and prayer is that when you hear that word for the rest of your life, you will think about the two texts that we're going to look at in the Bible today. The first and our main text is Exodus 34, 29 through the end of the chapter. We will be going to another text in the New Testament here in just a moment. I'll cue you on that and have you turn there with me when the time comes. For now, let's read our main text, Exodus 34, 29 through 35. This is God's word. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, 
he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, if you remember the setting here, just a, a reminder, verse 28 above, in the same chapter, verse 28 above tells us Moses has just been up on Mount Sinai with the Lord, For 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. 40 days and 40 nights. God was providentially sustaining Moses while he was up there on the mountain. And now he comes back down. Now, do you remember what happened the last time Moses came back down off Mount Sinai? Remember what happened the last time? Chapter 32. He comes down and the people are rebelling against God, worshiping a golden calf that they have made and saying, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And Moses is just livid. And he found them rebelling against the Lord. This time he doesn't find that. This time it seems like everything's okay among the people. But there's another difference about this time when he comes down. This time he comes down and his face is shining. His face is shining. Now why didn't that happen the first time he came down? Why wasn't his face shining the first time he came down? Well, some would say because his face was beat red, because he was absolutely ticked off because of what the people were doing. He was so upset. But the real reason is because of the difference in what happened those two times. You see, we covered this a couple weeks ago, I think two and three weeks ago. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai this last time, he asked God, please show me your glory. And God actually did show him a bit of his glory, if you will. And because of that, Moses comes down from the mountain this time and his face is shining. The residual light, the residual glory of God is coming off of his face for everyone to see. And this leads us up to our first point. The first lesson that I I want you to take away from this passage this morning. When you spend time with God, it shows. When you spend time with God, it shows. Very simple but very profound, very true. Moses had spent all this time in the glorious presence of God. Look back at verses 29 and 30 with me again. It says, when he came down, he did not know that the skin of his face was shining because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people saw it and they were afraid to come near him. He had spent all this time in the glorious presence of God. How could that not rub off on someone? How could it not rub off? Now, first, we need to take a step back and ask, what does this tell us about God himself? What does this tell us about God himself? Well, number one, it tells us that God is exceedingly glorious. God is exceedingly glorious in his very nature, in his very being, that just being around him is a powerful experience. The light of God's glory is exceedingly powerful. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light. His dwelling place is a dwelling place of light that is unapproachable. You cannot even approach it. And so it makes sense then that Moses being in the presence of God and God having shown him a bit of his glory, it makes sense that Moses' face would be shining when he comes down off this mountain. But the main point here is that when you spend time in the presence of God, it rubs off on you and people notice. 
when you spend time in the presence of God. It rubs off on you and people notice. Let me read to you a verse from the New Testament, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they, when the Jewish leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. The same was true for all the apostles. People were around them and they recognized there's something different about these people. It was evident that they had been with Jesus. The same is true for us. If you spend regular, consistent time with the Lord, people will notice. Now, I'm not just talking about if you spend a little bit of time in church today and you go out and into the community. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what it means here. We're talking about significant, consistent time with the Lord. When you do that, when you get away with God, when you get alone with God and go up on the mountain, if you will, with God for prayer and for reading your Bible, for hearing from God, when you come back down, people begin to notice. People begin to see it. Have you ever met someone that exudes the presence of the Holy Spirit? Think about this. Have you ever met someone like this? I think most of us probably have. Have you ever met someone that you could just tell they were different because they had spent time in the presence of the Lord? And you can just tell. We almost can't describe what it is. Perhaps they have this abiding peace about them. Perhaps it's something about the way that they talk or the way that they carry themselves. But you can even feel it when you're around them. You can even feel it, that they are full of the Holy Spirit. On Wednesday nights here at the church, we're studying the book of Acts. And as you go through the book of Acts, one thing that you find repeated over and over again is Luke writes this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit. This person was full of the Holy Spirit, and then they did something. A lot of times it's before someone stood up and gave an evangelistic type of speech. They were full of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is the biblical doctrine that every single believer is filled with the Holy Spirit when they become a Christian. When you give your life to Christ, God promises that he will send the Spirit to dwell inside of you. And so every true believer, every true believer has the Holy Spirit inside of them. But this is different. This is different. It's clear in the book of Acts he's talking about something else, being full of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about it in Ephesians where it's, it, his phrase is being filled with all the fullness of God. There's having the Holy Spirit, and then there's being full of the Holy Spirit. And when you meet someone like that, who has spent time in the presence of the Lord, you can tell. You can tell. And so I ask you today, do you want to be that kind of person? Do you want to be that kind of person? The kind of person... When people come away from interacting with you, they know that they have just been in the presence of someone who has been in the presence of the Lord, who has spent time with God. Now, hear me on this. This is not some way to create a reputation for yourself so that people will think that you are especially holy. Don't become a Pharisee here, right? The main motivation we should have for spending time with the Lord is that we would have and enjoy Him That's our main motivation. Our main motivation in wanting to be with the Lord is because we love him and we want more of him 
And we're satisfied in him more than in anything else. David said in Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In God's presence there is fullness of joy. That's our main motivation. There's fullness of joy in God's presence. So that's why we want to spend time with the Lord primarily. So this isn't about increasing our own reputation, but let this be a motivator for you to pursue the Lord in your personal life. That when you spend regular, consistent time with the Lord, it will show. And other people will come away from interacting with you thinking, I need to spend more time with the Lord. I want what they have because they see it. When you spend regular, consistent time with God, people will notice. Now, I want you to notice in our text, though, when Moses came down, Aaron and all the people were afraid. They were afraid when they saw Moses' face shining. I mean, it would have been quite odd, wouldn't it? To see someone with their face glowing like this, it's coming like right off of their face. You know, today we see somebody like that. Have you, have you been near radiation? What's going on? Right? But it would have been very odd. They wouldn't have seen anything like this before. And they're scared of it because it's so different. They're scared of it because it's different. And the same is going to be true of those who spend significant time with the Lord. The more godly you become, the less like the world you become. Therefore, the more the world will see you as odd or weird. It's going to happen. The more godly you become, the less worldly you become. And the more over here you become, the, the, more, the more like God you become, the more full of the Holy Spirit, the more the people who don't know anything about that, people who don't know the Lord, will think you are are odd. You are weird. John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles are perfect examples here for us. Because when people interacted with them, those who had hearts that were open to God were drawn to those men. But those who did not know the Lord and did not wish to know the Lord, they saw those men as freaks. They saw those men as the weirdos. And many times they saw those men as threats threats. And so there's two sides to the lesson here, two sides to my exhortation to you this morning. If you spend consistent time with the Lord, it will show, people will notice. But on the one hand, some will be drawn to you because they are drawn to the Lord himself. Some will be attracted to that, as many of you have probably experienced seeing someone full of the Holy Spirit. It, it's attractive. It draws you to them. It, wants you, it makes you want to, to want more of the Lord. But others, others will distance themselves from you. Others may even ridicule you or talk about you behind your back and begin to think that you're just that weirdo who is always going on about religion. And this is a package deal. You don't get one without the other. It's a package deal. Are you willing to take it? Do you want the deal? You say, I'll take that deal. You see, those, those who love the Lord and want the Lord more than anything else in the world, I take that deal every time. Every time. Because if I spend the next however long I've got left on this earth, I'm 37. No one knows how much longer they have, but let's say I live to a ripe old age. If I spend the next 40, 50 years being looked at as the weird guy who's always talking about Jesus... 
I'll take that if for the rest of my life in heaven I can live with Christ and be around a few people that I help to bring to the Lord. It's worth it every time. Never going to look back on this life, this life that is a vapor, this life that is a mist that appears and is gone like a breath in cold air, God says. Never going to look back on this life in heaven and regret giving up worldly comforts and pleasures for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Never going to do that. What we're going to regret if we're in heaven, what we're going to regret is not doing more for the glory of God, not risking more, not being willing more so to be the weird guy. That's what we're going to regret. And so it's a package deal. It comes both ways. But the overall lesson here is when you spend consistent time with the Lord, people will notice. Now, I want to draw your attention to the last few verses in our text, verses 33 through 35. Let me reread them. It says, And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he'd remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. And so every time Moses finishes speaking with God, he comes out, his face is shining again, and he puts the veil back down. And then every time it's time to go back into the tent of meeting and speak with God again, he lifts the veil up. Now, one of the blessings of a passage like this, especially for a preacher, is that the New Testament has a very particular passage and interpretation of this for us. I'm telling you, as a preacher and a teacher, when you're doing the Old Testament And there's a New Testament passage that speaks directly to it. It's just a blessing because it's like Paul's doing my work for me or whatever other New Testament writer. So I want to go with you to the New Testament now. You can leave Exodus behind. We're not coming back there. But if you will, turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where I'm going to ask everyone to go with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in your New Testaments. This is that second passage I made a a passing reference to earlier. 2 Corinthians 3, and here in just a moment I'm going to start reading in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. I want to spend the, the, the last half of our sermon, so to speak, now in this passage right here. Because this passage explains to us the true and deeper meaning of the veil in Exodus 34. The true and deeper meaning of that passage in Exodus 34 is found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 7, Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their face, or over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I want to go through and explain this briefly, kind of section by section or verse by verse a little bit. Up in verse 7, it starts off saying of the old covenant that it was the ministry of death. Down in verse 9, it says it's the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. And he begins with the glory that that covenant came with and makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that covenant, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation came with glory that was so great that people couldn't stare at the face of Moses. If that covenant came with so much glory, how much more the new covenant? Now he says that the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, why does he say it that way? Well, it's because the covenant in the Old Testament, the covenant that God made with the Israelites, his giving of the law, was based on perfect obedience. It was based on perfect obedience. If you obeyed God perfectly in all of his commands, he would reward you with eternal life. There's only one problem. No one can do it. No one could ever do it. Peter even makes mention of this in the book of Acts, that this was a burden that none of us could have ever bared. We could never bear this burden. No one can do it. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes the Old Testament law and shows everyone that there's no hope in trying to relate to God that way because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And so if you're trying to earn salvation by your obedience to God's commands, you're fighting a losing battle and there's no chance. There is only one man in the history of the universe who has ever been able to say that he earned salvation because of his perfect obedience. But none of us are that man. None of us can say that. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And so the old covenant is based on performance and perfect, perfect obedience. And then God will reward those with salvation. That's if you want to relate to God based on law. If you want to relate to God based on law keeping, that's what you have in front of you. But thank the Lord there is another way. There's another way to relate to the Lord. There is a new and better covenant. And the new covenant is different. It's a covenant not based on works and obedience, but based on grace and forgiveness. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross... As Craig read earlier from Hebrews, the once for all sacrifice, to end all sacrifices, because of that sacrifice, we can now come to God and receive forgiveness freely. We can receive the forgiveness of the Lord and be made right with God and enter into eternal life when our time comes, not based on our perfect record of obedience, but based on His, based on Jesus's. And Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' death and Jesus' payment for sin is applied to our account if we just come to him in faith. That's the new covenant. 
And so do you start to see why Paul is saying, how much more will the new covenant, the covenant of grace and righteousness for all who believe, how much more will this covenant come with glory if the old one did? Look at verses 12 through 13 in 2 Corinthians 3 here. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold and we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We don't veil our faces. We don't hide it. We're supposed to let it shine, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, no. We're going to let it shine. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we're not like Moses in this way. We don't put a veil over it to hide it. We let it shine. We let it shine. Now remember, we said earlier, when you spend time with the Lord, people will notice. And you let it shine. And people see that and then they turn and glorify God. It's not for them to glorify you. It's not for your own reputation. Jesus said that they may see those things and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then look at verses 14 through 16 here. Paul says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so what he's saying is, when you read the Old Testament, if you read it without Christ, there's a veil over it. There's a veil over your heart, your understanding. It seems so far removed. You read that Old Testament. It seems like it's not relevant. You say, I get nothing out of it. It's so boring. Put me out of my misery. I can't read this stuff anymore. Right? So many people read the Old Testament and think that. But verse 16 tells us when you turn to the Lord, that veil is removed. Just like the husband removes the veil... From the bride's face, Jesus removes the veil from the face of everyone who turns to him, who binds themselves to him. Jesus removes the veil from all who become a part of his bride, the church. And slowly but surely, when that happens, slowly but surely, you begin to see the glory of God and the glory of Christ himself in all the pages of the Old Testament. Slowly but surely, you read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and you see the glory of Christ through it all. You begin to feel joy and longing and satisfaction in your soul, even when you're reading the Old Testament. You begin to see how all the pieces fit together. And the key that unlocks the whole thing, Paul says, is Christ. The key that unlocks the whole thing is Christ. He's the the puzzle piece that fits it all together. He's the, the cornerstone. And so verse verse 18 now, we come to verse 18, kind of the climax of it all, where Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When you behold the glory of God, you begin to be changed into his image little by little. Now the Bible says we were all created in God's image. But that image has been marred, 
and twisted and broken by sin. But when you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you begin to be transformed and changed into God's image little by little. Remember, we said earlier, when you spend time with the Lord, people will notice Well, that's what Paul is saying here. If you consistently behold the glory of God by hearing, preaching, and teaching that proclaims the glory of God through his word, and by reading the Bible for yourself and seeing God's glory there for yourself, when you do that regularly, it changes you. It transforms you. It transforms you into a new person. And if you do it long enough, pretty soon it will be evident to all of those around you. They'll say, that is a godly man. That is a godly woman. That is someone who is full of the Holy Spirit. That is someone that I can tell that they have communed with the Lord. They have been in the presence of the glory of God. And all you have done is consistently placed yourself at the foot of God's throne with a heart that is eager to receive whatever he has for you. That's all you've done. It's as simple as that. And you won't even realize it until somebody starts making a remark about how you've changed. You won't even think about it until somebody starts saying something and all of a sudden you realize, I have changed, but I haven't been doing anything. What have I really been doing? All you've been doing is placing yourself at the foot of God's throne where he can do his work on you. Spending time with the Lord consistently. People can't help but notice because you're transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. When we behold the glory of God, brothers and sisters, it changes everything. That is my number one concern as your minister, that you would behold the glory of God. That's what we're trying to do every Sunday morning that we come here, I want you to see the glory of God with the eyes of your hearts. That's the whole point of reading the Bible. That's the whole point of being a Christian. That's the end of it all. The end of it all is that we would eventually, for all eternity, be in the presence of God, beholding his glory with no veil, with nothing to separate us from it. That's the end of all things. And yet we can begin to do that now. And so I exhort you, I encourage you, I plead with you. Go behold the glory of God. Would you go do it for yourself and taste and see that the Lord is good. Be satisfied in him because in his presence there is fullness of joy. Right now we're going to spend some time in prayer. Each week at Columbia Christian we do this immediately after we hear God's word. We hear from God and then we speak back to God. We hear from the Lord and we respond based on what we have heard from his word. And so we give this time right now as a time where everyone can respond to God's word. We'll have a time here in just a moment where people can respond to the word in a public manner. But every single one of us needs to respond to the word uh, that, that the Lord has laid on our hearts in a private manner. Every single one of us needs to do that. And so that's what this time is for. We encourage you, we challenge you to pray, to use this time speaking to the Lord And then after a few moments of individual prayer, we'll come back and we'll have a time where anyone who needs to respond to the word publicly can do so. Let's pray.